I'm Mia from SOAS Radio, and we're really, really happy to host the fifth World Radio Day um, together with C4D Communication for Development Network. The theme today is radio and peace building. We've got an amazing panel. Anne Bennett from Herondale Foundation on, the, on your right. Francis Rolt from um, Radio for Peace Building and Corita McDonald from UNICEF, and we're really lucky to have them here. Um, also, Jackie Davies from C4D is going to be chairing the panel. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your patience. I hope you've had some biscuits and juice. And um, I'm going to be handing over to Jackie. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Maya. So... As many of you probably know, this is becoming a really nice central annual event, so as World Radio Day. You probably know that World Radio Day was a few days ago, but we thought it was a bit close at the weekend and Valentine's, so it's today. But um, we are really delighted to work with SOAS Radio on this day, and it totally aligns with everything that we on the network are keen on, which is people coming together to share and to learn together. So that's our focus really in looking at this theme of peace building and communication for development. It is as a community of practice, what do we do and what is effective and what can we teach each other about what we do? So that is uh, our angle. We, in the preparation for this event, did our first little experiment, which we really loved and made us feel the energy and passion of radio again, which was to ask across the network for members to contribute audio around peace building. And we didn't know if it would be one or two submissions, but it's proved to be you know, a really great little first experiment, and we want to play that to you at some point in the evening. And it also will be available on the network. And we're hoping to mix it with practitioner interviews and content from today as well, so that there will be four rebroadcasts or just for learning on the network more and more audio on different themes, and peace building is our first. And just to contextualize, um, we have this partnership with UNICEF, a three-year partnership that we're very delighted about. It's the first partnership for the network as a whole with another institution. And, uh, you know, it's tricky in the beginning to like write lots of documents and things like that, and maybe that's not our skill set, but it's really brilliant to work with UNICEF in really broadening our own understanding of what peace building means and all the wide range of activities across communication for development that is happening. So it's in that context that we want to carry on in crowdsourcing best practice around communication for development and peace building and really continue learning and sharing. But Enough about that for now, and I would like to introduce uh, or to invite Anne to kick off with her, her contribution, and we're going to have presentations from the panel for about 10-15 minutes, and then it's open to questions from the floor, which I'll happily chair. 
Great. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Can, can you hear me? Great. Well, thank you to SOAS and to the network um, and to partners here on the panel uh, for putting together this, this evening to celebrate radio. I think for those of us that work in radio, we're, we're pretty convinced of the role it plays, but it's always nice to look back and, and reflect around this theme of building peace um, and to really try to better understand, well, what, what role does radio play in situations of conflict? Um, I have a very um, short clip that I wanted to play. It's from um, Studio Tamani in Mali, and I'll just tell you a little bit about our organization and about the, our project in Mali, and then we'll play this clip. Um, and then I'll, I'll just say a few more things about our work um, in conflict situations. So uh, Foundation Here on Dell is a Swiss NGO. Uh, we were founded a little over 20 years ago by a couple of journalists that were covering the um, genocide in Rwanda for Swiss radio and television. Um, and they said, you know, we got to do something. People have no access to information. The population sitting in Geneva knows more about the, what's going on on the ground than the um, communities that are affected very directly. And so they got a small grant from the Swiss government, set up um, an independent radio station um, with the full intention of going back to their day jobs. And 20 years later, uh, we have eight projects in eight countries across Africa and an estimated listenership of about 30 million people to our radios. So um, we're still a small organization when compared to BBC Media Action um, and Internews, uh, but a mighty force in, in some countries. So right now uh, we have um, a, a radio in Central African Republic called Radio Ndeki Luka, um, a, a poll listener survey in Bangui uh, demonstrated that about 85% of the population tuned into Radio Ndeki Luka for news. The radio has continued to broadcast throughout the conflict. Um, at one point, we had five staff members actually sleeping at the radio because there was a curfew. It was too dangerous for them to get out. Um, very dangerous to report in some neighborhoods of Bangui. Um, so really working in a very tense situation where you know, one of the things that, you know, is, really strikes me is that the staff themselves are very affected. So there's, there's violence going on in their neighborhoods, and, and yet still they're finding their way to the radio because they know it's an important um, source of information for people and an important source of continuity. We had a, a listener in Bangui um, on the anniversary of the, of the radio call in and, and we were asking listeners to tell us you know, what they thought about radio and Dickie Luke and he said it's when I turn on my radio in the morning at six in the morning and I hear the news I, I have hope and it's really that regularity that a radio like radio and Dickie Luca can provide in that situation. In, uh, we're also working in Mali, um, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, and in Tunisia. So we're, we're largely in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, our projects are all a little bit different. Sometimes it's a standalone radio. Sometimes it's a production uh, studio and training unit with a network of community radio. So we're producing content with community radio net journalists, with local journalists, and it's being broadcast. Um, so I wanted to show just a little um, clip, if you got it there. 
Les lignes peuvent-elles bouger pour relancer le processus de paix au Mali Madame, Monsieur, bonsoir et bienvenue. Ce grand Petit bureau. studio pour vaste projet, la réconciliation. Apparemment banal, la scène est rare au Mali. Autour du même micro, des protagonistes du conflit qui déchirent le Nord. Nom de l'émission, le grand dialogue, débat parfois vif, mais on se parle. Le Mali, en gros, il n'y a, a pas vraiment de culture de débat. Donc euh, on essaie d'instaurer cette culture de débat où les acteurs viendront parler, euh, se parler entre eux, parler au peuple, euh, édifier le peuple de ce qui se passe et ensemble essayer de trouver également des solutions. À l'origine de Studio Tamani, une fondation suisse hirondelle. 20 ans d'expérience dans plusieurs médias de réconciliation du Rwanda au Congo avec Radio Okapi. La version malienne est lancée en juillet dernier financement européen, encadrement français. L'idée c'est d'informer, l'idée c'est de, de permettre aux gens de se faire leur propre opinion euh, sur la situation. Et nous on est vraiment convaincus qu'une euh, information équilibrée euh, permet aux gens de, de faire la paix. Mais on n'est pas là pour leur dire ce qu'il faut faire, pas même de faire la paix, c'est à eux de le faire. Journalists to, to come into a country and tell people how to behave and to wash their hands and to vote and to make peace. But we are there to really provide a platform for dialogue, a platform for voices to be heard. We're there also to listen to the population. And one of the wonderful things about radio is um, you're you're speaking and communicating, but you're also listening, and um, you're allowing others to listen to voices that you might not hear in in the community. And so. You know, you're empowering those unheard voices. You're creating a place for dialogue. One of the things that we found in many countries is there is not a culture sometimes of dialogue on the radio or debate, and yet that can be fostered. Um, I worked before in, in Khartoum, and I remember Sudanese journalists coming to us and saying, oh, you know, we, debate's not really our thing, you know, around the radio. That's not what we do on the radio. And sort of gave it a try and brought some voices together, and, and it turned out to be a, a really popular program um, that, you know, people got very involved in and, and tuned into a lot of good feedback from the listeners. So um, we're sort of playing around with different platforms, different kinds of programming, um, and those programs are always going to be adapted to the situation where we're working. Um, so one of the first things we do when we go into a country is we really try to understand the, the media landscape and to see where we can fill the information needs and the training needs of the population without competing with local actors um, and without creating another structure that can't be sustained over the long term. Um, one of the things about creating radios in post-conflict or in developing situations is that you're really creating an, a local institution that people grow to count on. And so if at the end of your project you pull up stakes and you take down the Um, the tower and you, you know, take away the equipment, you're really leaving a big gap. And so we work very hard to figure out how to sustain um, our media over the long run. And we're, we tried some different models. The Studio Tamani model is a, is a training and a production unit in Bamako um, with a network of about 50 Malian community radio stations. So rather than competing with the community radio, we're providing Uh, training for their journalists, we're providing the, the technical capacity to downlink our programs, and we're providing um, this Grand Dialogue national debate program, we're providing news and information in local languages um, that they can't produce. We're um, producing a program with the support from UNICEF 
um, that's focused on children. Um, we're producing a program with some funding from Ford Foundation that's focused on um, women's and, and uh, family news. And so we're doing things that they can't do on their own but are still important to the populations that, that they serve. Um, another model um, is Cotton Tree News in Sierra Leone. Uh, we set that up in 2006 in partnership with the University of Sierra Leone. And we, um, they had a small um, uh, university radio and we um, helped build out a newsroom and build another on-air studio and production studio. And um, so that became a training center. Um, it also became a source of, of news and information um, that was quickly very popular in a country of young people. So through a broadcast network with the community radios, we were actually able to reach um, most regions, most major cities in the country um, and build up our, our listenership. And, now we've been able to turn that over to the to the university, and it's they're managing that on their own and, and sustaining it. Um, so I think that that issue of sustainability is something that really preoccupies all of us. Um, it's not just a project where you go in and, and come out. Um, I wanted to mention really three things that I'm sort of thinking about, and and you know for our field of, of radio, and, and certainly working in in situations that are coming out of conflict that. Um, are, two of them are exciting and one of them is, is sort of worrisome and so I wanted to just bring them up and I hope that that will stimulate some conversation later on during the question period. Um, the first one has to do with uh, broadcast networks and I think one of the things that's um, very expensive and challenging is reaching a population in a country that's um, has a very poor infrastructure. It's very costly to set up um, FM transmitters across the country. Some of the places where we work have the most expensive internet in the world. Um, and so it's getting, you know, producing that, that the content is, is not that expensive, but actually getting it to the population. And there we're seeing some really interesting innovations. Um, one is the use of um, smartphones or even telephones, sort of dumb phones as a transistor. So more and more people are listening to them, the, the radio with those phones. The other um, thing that we've been testing in West Africa is the use of Bluetooth. So we've produced content. We started out with a program for women, um, and we set up women's listening centers in places like um, family planning centers or, or schools, and we deliver that uh, content via Bluetooth to the listening center. The listening center uh, is able to play that like a podcast, um, and the women are able to actually take that program on their phones. You can, um, most, even Nokia, very inexpensive Nokias, as long as they have a memory chip, have Bluetooth capacity. And so they were, women, are, we found, are taking these programs home to their communities and listening to them again in much the same way that we would listen to a podcast. Um, the second sort of technical, um, innovative, you know, aspect of radio um, again, is the use of, of, you know, being sort of platform agnostic. So the, producing the content, as we would for an FM radio or a shortwave broadcast, um, but pushing it out on a lot of different platforms. So, you know, having a website, having uh, a mobile platform that's built and designed for a mobile telephone, so not just a website put onto your telephone. And then the use of apps, like Instagram, where you can, um, you know, add video to your audio, um, or WhatsApp, where you can create... Um, messages around, for instance, the elections or, or a health incident, or you can provide updates. Um, so that's another way where we're getting, um, you know, people in that youth bracket, especially 15 to 24, 
um, who are so important in a post-conflict setting um, to tune in and to, to sort of meeting them where they are rather than saying here's our radio broadcast and it's on this frequency from this time to this time but actually going to, to the listener. Um, the third thing is, is something that preoccupies me and I wanted to bring it up and I think this is a good forum. It's just that the, there's a tendency in, uh, in donor funded media development which is certainly where Hirondal falls um, for um, and there's sort of an overabundance of institutional content, um, public service announcements, top-down programming, uh, centrally produced programming that's then pushed out. One of the things that we saw during the Ebola crisis um, was that many community radios and local radio were just used as a broadcaster. So um, they weren't actually producing content themselves. It was being done by international organizations and then pushed out. And um, we know that the the effect was actually the opposite of what was desired. You know, it didn't produce health-seeking behavior, and in some cases, um, you know, really fed the fear um, that the populations had around Ebola. And um, you know, if there's one lesson that we learn from Ebola, it's that um, the messenger really counts, and credibility and trust count. And that comes from journalists that live in your community, you know, speak your language. And so, it doesn't mean that. You know, doing a health campaign um, is impossible, but it needs to be done with good journalistic standards. And again, you know, the work we've done with UNICEF is a good example where rather than blasting out, you know, a number of PSAs, we actually worked with the community radios, worked in local languages, and are doing programs that um, reflect the, the, you know, information needs and the um, questions that the population have, and they're, they're journalistically sound. And I think that's, you know, in some ways, we have a, a, a role to actually educate our donors um, and say, you know, who want, who come to us and say, well, you know, we've got a money for a campaign, and you say, yeah, that, you know, we can fund a program or that can contribute to a program, but we're going to do it in a journalistic way. Um, and I think that's a, you know, you're, we're just seeing more and more in countries where you have a lot of NGOs working and there's a lot of donor funding. Um, the radio isn't really getting better, and I think, you know. NGOs packed up and international organizations left, you know, Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone and didn't really leave much impact on the local media. And, um, you know, those media need to, they're still on the front line of, you know, public health, of holding their government to account, and they need that support. And I think we need to design our work in a way that really builds their capacities and listens to them when they, you know, and asks them what they need from us. Um, so that's um, something I hope we can touch on later. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, and that's really interesting and resonates with a lot of, I think, uh, many people's experience in the field. Thank you. Francis. Yeah. <clears throat> Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, I was uh, asked to talk about what role can radio play in peace building. Um, I'd like to turn that around and say that uh, without radio there is no peace building. It doesn't exist. Um, I'll explain, I hope, during this talk why I think that. Uh, I've just come back from northeast Nigeria, from Maiduguri, uh, where the Boko Haram is uh, based. Um, it's a very interesting place. It's, uh, Maiduguri is actually held by the army at the moment, and um, 
they pushed Bokaram out of the town. Um, but while I was there, they attacked a, a village just on the outskirts. You probably read about it. Uh, they killed 80 people, mostly women and children. Um, so it's still a very tense situation. Um, the majority of Boko Haram supporters and victims are Kanuri speakers. It's a language of the northeast Nigeria, Borno, and of many other people in the Lake Chad Basin. Um, Kanuri speakers feel themselves to be isolated, ignored, and without any kind of means of uh, unifying themselves. They're spread across uh, four different countries. And um, dominated by a, a, a sort of politico-religious elite who many Kanuri feel don't take their needs and uh, wishes, desires into account. Um, and, you know, that is probably partly what has fed Boko Haram or fed their success in their own terms. Um, as this elite has kind of decided things in its own favor. Um, there are a few Kanuri language programs on local radio, um, but there is no Kanuri language media as such until now. What I was doing there was working with a, a colleague, in fact, ex Hirondel, David Smith, who set up Radio Kapi in Congo and Radio Ndekaluka in uh, Central African Republic. Um, he is now setting up a radio, a Kanuri language radio in Maiduguri. So it will broadcast to um, across the whole territory. It is already broadcasting three hours a day on shortwave. Um, most people in that area have shortwave radios because they listen to the BBC, VOA, and so on. They don't, can't get FM. Um, so they have cheap Chinese. Uh, radios which can, can pick up shortwave. Um, now the problem with not having any Kanuri language media until now is that a strong narrative like the Boko Haram one uh, can capture a proportion of the population. Uh, it's not a highly educated population. Illiteracy is very high in fact in, in Borno. Um, and really, anyone who comes in and says, well, you know, I know what Islam is, and um, this is an explanation of the world, which explains why you are poverty-struck uh, and why your family is having such, so many problems to survive, you know, creates the narrative. There is no other narrative because there is no means for Kanuri speakers to create their own narrative, beyond a, a kind of cultural narrative, a linguistic one. Um, so I'll go back a step. There are nine million Kanuri speakers centered on Lake Chad, on the Lake, ba uh, Lake Chad Basin. They're spread across Nigeria, Niger, Chad, and Cameroon. So that's nine million people without a single voice and without an accessible, for the majority, counter-narrative to Boko Haram. As I said, the majority are, are uh, pre-literate, um, 
There was very little power in the state. While I was in my degree, there was no power at all. I was there for three weeks, um, apart from generators. And not that many people have generators. So there's no TV. The state radio faces enormous financial difficulties um, and only broadcasts about half an hour a week on, in Kanuri. But Kanuris are immensely proud of their language and culture, but feel themselves to be dominated by Hausa speakers, which is the other large language group in northern Nigeria and southern Niger. Um, so I'm involved in setting up this radio station, three hours a day, as I said, but six hours a day from the beginning of March, and later on more. So the point is there are, as I said, nine million speakers, one radio station. That's a, a radio broadcaster's dream. Um, I think the station provides the opportunity for Kanuris to begin to construct their own counter-narrative to Boko Haram. People in my degree hate Boko Haram. People I met, let me rephrase that. People I met hate Boko Haram. Um, the problem is they have no means until this radio station to really discuss among, with other Kanuris, whether they're in rural areas or in other countries, uh, about Boko Haram and begin to construct this counter-narrative. So it's a traditional, largely static society, but it's been thrown into disarray over the last 20 years, as, as many places have been, by what we might call the shock of the new. It, things like environmental degradation, cultural shocks like mobile phones, um, you know, information about the West, um, demographic shocks, 50% of the population is under 20, um, and, of course, by money and arms. Boko Haram pays $100 for someone to do a very simple task, go and deliver something. Uh, take this information from here to there, whatever, $100. That is a large month's salary for many, many people much more than a month's salary for most people. So for one thing, they get $100 cash, a $100 note. So communication, radio is the only choice. There's no TV. There's no electricity for TV. Um, and it's the key to building resilience to some of these shocks. Or, or resilience to the kind of shocks which the factors uh, like the, the culture and so on uh, embody. So without communication, there can be no lasting unity or peace. Radio, as, as Anne very, point, very uh, clearly pointed out, can maintain the idea of hope, which is very important in conflict. When people lose hope, that's when a conflict is, is lost for a long, long time. 
conflict lost in the sense of it's going to be impossible to bring peace for a long, long time. It can build bridges between young people and old people, for example, between different communities. It can help change social norms and attitudes. It can break down stereotypes. It can undermine narratives of hate. So peace can be imposed without communication. It happens all the time. But it's very hard to difficult and uh, uh, very difficult to maintain it without communication. Without communication, peace building cannot work. It doesn't work. It's absolutely central to the concept of peace building. It's something which is done by the people for the people, not imposed from outside. Providing a radio gives Canaries the opportunity to speak to and with each other and to begin to construct this new narrative rather than having one imposed from outside either by Boko Haram or by anyone else. It will take a long time, but I think it will happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis. Straight from the field. Thank you. Karida. Less in the field and more in the conceptual thinking? I'm going to, if you don't yes. mind, come around. Yep. Just so There's I can a see. mic over there. I'll just be here, if that's okay. If you'd like to go there, you can um, move the slides. Okay, maybe. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, Jackie and team from C4D Network, and um, and thanks for the uh, sort of insightful telling. I think of the um, the reality of the world of uh, radio, and um, also Francis. Uh, so. As you know, UNICEF is a child rights organization, so I wanted to sort of bring this story of radio on World Radio Day from the sort of lens of uh, how it can be supporting children's rights and supporting peace building in relation to, to children and children's issues. Um, much of what we do is with good partners like Hirondel, like Search for Common Ground. Um, a lot of the issues, as you can imagine, with peace building are very controversial. Um, UNICEF, the way we do our work is with government. Um, and yet, with so many issues to do with conflict, there are issues that are um, of, of resistance to government or to hold government accountable. So the only way UNICEF can actually do some of its good work is to find good um, civil society partners to work with. So um, most of what I'm presenting is the work that we do with partners. Um, UNICEF has a critical role because while we want to give voice to civil society and communities, it also has this liaison role that it can play with government. And you can't do anything sustainably without government. So it's, it's a complex picture, but the, the pieces have to come together. It's civil society, government, and, and the people. So... Uh, um, before I even uh, start on these two case studies I wanted to share with you, which is on Burundi and Uganda, um, something that sort of struck me, um, so I'm, 
Jackie says I'm more in headquarters. I'm actually a field person. I've been in New York for, um, I would say, two years now, but um, I spent the life of my work in the field. And uh, when I was in New York, actually, I was asked to go to South Sudan um, during the, you know, the heat of the crisis after the, the, the whole conflict had um, just broken out. And I was flown in by helicopter into um, a place called Minkaman, um, where there were a lot of, um, it was a, pretty much a refugee place where, where people had fled um, the violence. And that's when I realized the importance of radio in different phases of conflict, because my experience with, with radio had been more about in trying to diffuse things before the conflict or working um, post-conflict, uh, many of the situations that you were describing. But during that time, I realized how different the role of radio is in relation to the phase of conflict. Um, when when Minkaman, um, it's literally about information to save lives. And it's also about giving feedback to people who are trying to deliver support. And it's so critical and it's so time-bound so that people know where to go for water, where to go for food, where to go if their, their child has been, um, is missing. That's a very different kind of use of radio. Um, it's really about um, life-saving messages. And so I just wanted to sort of nuance when we speak about radio that, and, and peace building, that we have to really think about um, the time and, and when it is that we're using radio to support um, um, people's needs. Uh, so that was in Minkaman, and there was um, a generator um, that was um, being used to, to, um, to give the power for this um, small transmitter to everyone who was in the close vicinity, um, and to, to do interviews with people about their needs, about their um, experiences, how are they managing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so um, that was Minkaman. Um, in Burundi, uh, UNICEF has been working with um, Ubuntu Center, which is an, an NGO um, that promotes peace, reconciliation, and development of young people and communities. And how this is done take off this, um, is through uh, weekly broadcasts on national radio and listener groups. So I think Anne was speaking about work, I think, with universities. I mean, of course, there are many models of supporting sustainability, as, as um, she was uh, explaining. But UNICEF works a lot with secondary schools and how do um, young people who are in clubs there listen to the radio and um, interact as part of um, after-school activity. Uh, I think it's also useful to think of radio as part of um, um, different types of communication. You spoke about ICTs, which is, is one platform, but also um, print you know, or online to support what is going on on the radio. This is where transcripts from, from radio stations can be brought into a print magazine or onto online, commentaries from readers um, or listeners, um, competitions that are related to content that's on a radio. So I think it's also useful to think of radio in a constellation of other um, supportive C4D platforms. Uh, in most UNICEF countries, which I think is a, an important thing to think about, is the capacity development of young people themselves as, as journalists. Um, they're not professionals, but they're very important communicators, and they have their pulse on what's going on in their communities. So many of the countries that we work in have junior journalists, um, clubs, you know, after-school clubs, out-of-school children clubs, um, and these are the who um, are used in the case of, of peace building. So, 
Here in Burundi, there's a, a network of junior journalists and there's a local set of community radio stations where we just give a small amount of money so that they can go out into the communities, the, the junior journalists. How it's done is that um, there's a selection process to, to choose who these young people are going to be and it's just not anyone. It's people who are considered to be responsible. They go through a whole shortlisting that's done by a, a, a coordination committee with the Ministry of Communication. Um, and then you can see the age group, 13 to 18 years. So a good core mass of, of child journalists who are then trained, and the, we do the training in collaboration with uh, Search for Common Ground. They have a conflict sensitivity curriculum, so there's a sort of standard approach to, um, to training of the journalists. Um, and then we have a UN volunteer that works with UNICEF Burundi to coach the children on participatory process. So how do you not dominate a discussion? How do you have a two-way um, uh, dialogue to identify what the issues are. Because as you probably know, those of you in radio or in any media, it's important to build stock um, of programs so that you're not um, you know, trying to get something transmitted today and not have the one for tomorrow. So this is where a lot of the issues are identified and they can be doing pre-recording pre -recording of a bank of, of, of radio programs. So there were 25, for example, in, in UNICEF uh, Burundi, 25 thematic issues that were identified through focus groups, doing uh, groups of um, discussion with, with groups of children. And they identified issues in relation to peace building, such as tolerance, discrimination, interpersonal communication. Um, some of the challenges they've had in doing this um, is something that um, Anne spoke about, is that it's controversial and the radios were burned, some of the radio stations. And then the parents are very worried about the safety of the children. So these are just real-life challenges with um, continuing the work when it's in a volatile situation. The second um, example I wanted to bring to you was the one in Uganda, where we work with Straight Talk Foundation, which is, um, works specifically in U Uganda's north, um, east districts of um, Karamoja. And there's a station called uh, Nina FM. And this is... Um, it's probably very similar to how, how uh, different organizations work with groups of adults, but this is a format, format of the radio intervention that we do with um, Straight Talk Foundation. The material is collected, um, focus group discussions happen, the listener groups of young children, um, children or um, young adolescents, um, who then develop the radio scripts in a kind of workshop style. Um, and then they do the pre-recorded radio shows and bank them. And then live talk show, which is sometimes done, which sometimes is very um, risky because uh, certain things will be said, you can't take it back. So most of, most of what happens is, is pre-recorded. But there are live talk shows that are done um, by recording some of the focus groups so that it just is transmitted live. And then some feedback sessions. Um, this is just a picture of um, one of the community listener groups where they're dialoguing about issues to be broadcast in the pre-recorded programs. And then um, refresher training, it's called refresher training because as I said, there's um, groups of junior journalists that are, have been doing recording on all issues. But this, you know, issues on, on peace building and how you deal with conflict sensitivity and have a, a very different approach to the issues is, is something important. So this is done as an addition. 
so in 2015, that's just last year, they, they did as much as uh, over 300 pre-recorded uh, weekly radio shows promoting peace building, conflict resolution. And um, because each of the themes, whether it be on land issues or whatever the issues are, um, are sometimes have a lot of technical issues or a lot of background and history, it's important that you bring you know, resource persons onto that program who can field the questions, who can deal with some of the more um, nuanced issues. And so um, the, they're, they're identified with, uh, along with the young people. And um, this is just talking about the, the live radio shows. Um, as I was saying, the, the, the partnerships with the government um, departments, like the uh, Ministry of Local Government and the Ministry of Gender, Labor, and Social Development, um, are the, the interface with the community dialogue. UNICEF or any partner can't just go into a community when there's local government there. Um, well, UNICEF can't. You know, it's something that we need to do with, with, with local government. So, um, you know, having a way that the issues can be um, talk, talked about openly rather than, um, you know, it's it sort of setting up further uh, source of, of conflict um, is something that, that is done. Uh, just a few sort of ideas or, or things that have come out of some of the work that we've been doing on peace building is, is the influence that radio has at different levels. And on the individual level, uh, we know that it does help um, shape individual attitudes and values. I think much of what um, the things that Francis was talking about, um, self-reflection and that opportunity to create space for people to think about what's going on and to talk about it and to um, talk about appropriate responses to conflict. Um, interpersonal exchange. So we found that when we get young people together um, in a community for the radio training, it's an opportunity for that um, space to get together where um, usually uh, young people from different ethnic groups are not necessarily getting together. And this is something where they have a common goal to get to um, do a, a radio program that they can be proud about. So, it in itself provides a platform for exchange and, um, and good uh, relationship building. And then at the community level, um, doing radio entertain edutainment is just a, a good release. I mean, in, in South Sudan, when I went there, the tension and just always thinking about, you know, the next, um, you know, threat that's coming at you, to have some kind of edutainment is just an important release um, for, for people. Um, and just to discuss normal everyday things. So not necessarily about peace building, but just providing a, a sort of escape from the, the um, conflict and tension. It also provides an opportunity for understanding different points of view. I think the points about uh, a different narrative, um, uh, creating spaces for that plurality of voices, and an opportunity to create national identity. So beyond the war and the tension, what is it that, you know, not just discussing the the challenges and the problems, but what is the vision? What is the vision for the new hope? And, and, and how does that look? Um, another, I think, lessons, lesson learned or, or advantage of, of radio in peace building is being able to bring younger people and older people together on a program and discuss issues when that space is not often there and created. Um, so, you know, having young people talk about what's happening in their households, in their communities, with um, an older set of people is another advantage. And then just linking community voices 
with the subnational and the and the policy making. It's not often that that you'll have a a minister um, of local government or just the village chairperson um, sort of come down and listen to the community's uh, needs and issues. So it's a way of, of linking community voices with, with the above. And that's it. I just wanted to share these two examples and to um, you know, sort of encourage us to think about um, the phases of conflict, if, if you are going to be someone involved in, in radio and peace building. And just for you who are thinking about um, the sustainable development goals being now the new development agenda, it is kind of, um, I think, uh, significant that the, one of these goals is now focused on peaceful and inclusive societies. It wasn't one of the MDGs. It wasn't, one, it wasn't the focus before. And now I think for you know, resource mobilization, for I think a recognition, um, of, 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 of peace and inclusive societies being on the development agenda is, is significant for us. And I think persons working in radio, um, as, as Francis said, there's, there can be no peace building without radio and definitely without communication for development. So thanks for the opportunity and I, I hope that many of you will um, be involved somehow in, in contributing to this space. It's an important one. And I look forward to hearing these um, collated um, excerpts from your radio programs. Thank you very much, everyone. Wow, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> that's a real richness of experience and thoughts. We're going to um, take questions now uh, and input um, from, from the floor. So if you would like to share anything about your own experience or your own research or reflections in this area, please feel free. Um, so to start, who are you? <laughs> oh yeah, if you could introduce yourself and then, and then we'll take, we'll take, um, Two questions, we'll take them in pairs and then take them to the panel. Katie. So, I'm Katie from the CVD Network. I think I've met most of you today. Um, but I wondered about radio and peace building and in these dangerous settings. Because the radio is so valuable, it also makes it a target. And how do you, perhaps Francis, or I think all of you would have experience with this, how do you build protection around them? Um, I have some experience of radio in northern Uganda and they became real, community radio stations became a real target for the LRA. Um, so of course they're so valuable to produce, but how do you make sure you protect those involved? I thank you for this opportunity. I'm Sophie. I'm from University of Reading. I was really interested when the first panelist talked about um, building the capacity of radios, like what are their needs, so that the radio people do the messages themselves, like build their capacity, so that the messages really resonate well with what is supposed to be disseminated. My question is, I look at the role of radio, whereby they have different recipients. They can have a number of organizations who just buy airtime 
and by buying airtime to produce their own programs, they kind of have the right to that message. So I just wanted to understand how complicated does it come for the radio as a channel of disseminating development-related messages that are really crucial when people are really buying that airtime. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so if we take those first two questions, and if you'd like to, to start on the question of security. Absolutely. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, and I'd like to touch on both of them if I could. I Please. Don't know oh, I... No, absolutely. So, um, good, really good questions. Uh, we used to think that the quality of our reporting kept us safe. So we were uh, balanced and usually equally criticized by both sides if it were a conflict situation. Um, or an election, you know, criticized um, for favoring one side or the other. But the, because we were getting from both sides, figured we were somewhere in the middle. Um, and, you know, it used to be for, for journalists, not just local radio, but for foreign correspondents, that both sides needed them. And um, if you were a foreign correspondent covering conflict, you could pass over um, front lines because both sides wanted to tell the story. And as we know, that where you know foreign correspondents aren't needed anymore, there are um, you know groups can communicate directly via social media or, or the internet, and and we've seen somewhat the same in situations like Central African Republic, where um, the quality of your reporting really doesn't keep you safe anymore, and and so it's a huge preoccupation. I think one of the things. You know, I was struck by what your remarks about working with the government, and um, that's a very you know wherever we work, there there is a government working there, and you need to comply by the laws of the government. And sometimes you're reporting on things that that are going to make that government very unhappy. And in many cases, your safety will depend on the, the quality of your relationship with that government and with different parts of that government. Um, with the judi judiciary or with the, the police. Um, and, and when we have an incident, we try and make that as public as possible and we call on the Committee to Protect Journalists. That's usually our first call. Sometimes the UN peacekeeping force. Um, but, but it is a preoccupation and, and you know, we've seen an, um, an uptick in uh, violence against um, the press and attacks on the press. Um, and it's very important to remember that the most vulnerable members of the media are the local journalists. And um, they often don't have security training. They don't wear protective equipment. They um, live in the communities. They are susceptible to threats. And we've had journalists, you know, security force say openly in front of others, I know where you live, um, or don't run that story. and and. You know, these are journalists that need to go home to a tukul where they have no protection. And, um, and sometimes we make decisions, editorial decisions, um, because we don't want to put our, our staff in, in danger. And I think that's just a call that the media needs to, to play. One of the things we're seeing in South Sudan is um, that media like um, the uh, free press radio, Tamazuj is now broadcasting from... Um, Kenya, and so they're not able to, to to do the kind of journalism that they would like to do inside the country, and they're doing it outside. And 
Um, and in some cases, that's called for. Hirondal really tries to report from inside the country. It's something that we feel it's important to be inside the country working. Um, but it, 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 it does create a situation of insecurity. If I could just answer on the airtime, that's a very good question. It's a very practical problem. Um, so I don't know if everybody understood, but you know the way that commercial or independent media or radio support themselves is they sell airtime, and that can be for um, announcements or your church has something, they buy airtime. Um, you use that money to pay your staff or to pay for your generator, and they um, sometimes have their, their announcement read, and sometimes they want to you know, have do the announcement themselves. One of the things that we've done to um, try and maintain the quality and, and sort of the continuity of the broadcast, because if you have a lot of that, you know, you have a radio that just doesn't sound very good and you don't even know what you're listening to anymore, is we try to encourage um, co-production. So um, if an NGO comes to us or a church group even and says, um, you know, we want to do something, we say, well, let's figure out how we can do that with our journalists. And um, we're careful when you have the staff to not use the news journalists to do that kind of work. So you use some of the people that maybe the continuity presenters to, to do that so that you maintain a certain quality and standard, um, but you're still getting paid for the airtime. So co-production is, is one thing. Um, and the other thing we do is we have a charter. So we have um, a very short and simple charter that um, gives basically the rules of what we do. So for instance, um, you know, alcohol and, you know, we don't do advertisements for alcohol or, you know, we don't, we have certain sort of quality control and, and we write that up in a charter and that makes it easy for us when we have someone come in who wants to do buy some airtime you know we've got this charter you know right up there and we can refer to that and say well you know we can within this charter this is the kind of programming that we can do for you on the airtime but it is a you know trying to pay for a radio that needs to um, put diesel fuel into a generator so it can broadcast um, and pay for transportation and pay salaries um, it it's very hard to do in economies that are, are struggling and certainly in um, post-conflict settings. Absolutely. Can I add to... Please. Um, just uh, adding to that last question, which I think is a really practical one. Um, from UNICEF's side, uh, we always try our best not to pay for airtime. Um, it's really hard because they see us as, you know, the, the donor, um, which UNICEF, by the way, is not a donor. Uh, we are a technical um, partner. A, um, development agency, but um, most a lot of the governments see us as a donor, like a USAID or a, you know, which we're not. So it's a whole education process. But one thing we try and do is offer training to to their staff, um, offer different ways of of supporting them in the work they want to do, so that we don't have to pay for airtime. So it's a sort of um, un, unwritten agreement, um, so that some of the development. Uh, programs that we're trying to, to have aired are not having to be paid for uh, by airtime. And, you know, the easier route is just to pay for it. And sometimes we do have the money and because it's important messages, but we really get angry, you know, in communication for development when our program people just go the easy route and pay for airtime because it really breaks down that, that sort of partnership relationship that you're doing a community service. You are a part of the government and we're trying to do development, you know, programming. So I think it's an important point though. 
Thank you. Francis? Yeah, just very quickly, I, my feeling is that if you're working in a conflict, that there isn't really any room for uh, commercial considerations. It's very unlikely that the economy will uh, be able to support a radio station through advertising or anything else. Uh, radio if you want to do peace building, then someone has to pay for it. So it's either a grant, donors come in and pay for it, or you charge um, uh, uh, you know, large organizations to broadcast things that they want to broadcast as well as doing your own stuff. But I don't know of a single example of a radio station in a conflict, which is you know, a live conflict, which is able to support itself. And on the issue of security? Um, uh, well, I think there are lots of different examples, but um, it's going to be difficult for us in, in uh, Nigeria because we've been broadcasting from Kano, which is a large city, uh, away from Borno, but we're now building studios in Maiduguri. Um, and obviously security for the staff, less so for the building, is going to be a, a very big problem. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we're going to resolve that. But in other places where I've worked, such as Burundi during the conflict there, uh, I ran a radio production studio, um, and we had a lot of discussions about security and about the safety of the journalists, they had a lot of discussions about it. Uh, and really, I deferred to them. Um, if they felt it wasn't safe, we wouldn't do it. Um, if they felt it was okay to do it and to broadcast something, then we would broadcast it. Um, you know, that didn't stop things happening. I had journalists arrested, thrown in jail for days. We didn't know what had happened to them. I had um, journalists who were bought, beaten up by soldiers, beaten up by other people, beaten up by militias. You know, but essentially, the choice in every case was a, a collective decision made by the journalists themselves. And I would um, you know, facilitate that discussion, make sure it happened, um, but I wasn't in a position to make the decision. First of all, because I wasn't really taking the risk. And secondly, because it wasn't my country and I didn't know all the ins and outs of everything that was going on. So I think, like Anne said, um, listening to your local staff and making sure that they feel empowered and, and fully able to express what they want to say uh, is extremely important. Thank you. Another two questions? Oh, and there, and then there. Hello there. Um, my name is Daniel. <clears throat> um, I was wondering, you've spoken quite a lot about um, the journalists and about various actors, but in terms of getting access to information to broadcast news, for example, uh, this, this question is directed at Francis just because um, I, uh, you, you spoke about my Duggery and about Borno State. I was just wondering, how do you protect sources in a place like Borno State, people who come to you with information, um, especially given that in a place like Borno State it's very difficult for information to reach news sources and to reach news outlets. What sort of steps do you take and what steps can be taken to protect um, your sources and people who come forward with information and I suppose then also to verify it and that sort of thing? How do you go about that process? Thank you very much. We'll take one more. 
Well, journalists have a hard time in Ireland and in Poland and in Hungary. I think it's not just in Africa reporting. They get death threats too. Um, there are three points here. First is that countries like India, which have huge number of conflicts, internal conflicts, in fact, are very wary of foreign uh, involvement in the media. And in fact, India actually f- uh, actively bars and jams uh, radio and television uh, signals from neighboring countries, such as Bangladesh and, and China and so forth. That's because they are very worried about what is likely to happen if foreigners interfere in their internal conflict. I think Africans should be wary of that. Um, second point is that in Northern Ireland, I think we should talk about home as well. In Northern Ireland, there is a very long-standing conflict between uh, Protestant uh, settler communities and the Irish Catholics, who were always treated as second-class citizens. The conflict continues even now. And how is radio helping uh, ameliorate the destructive intercommunal uh, distrust which exists in that environment. I wonder if you can give me some practical examples of how that's helped because that will help African nations to understand as well how we deal with our own internal conflicts. Uh, The third thing is that church radios or in fact Christian fundamentalist radio stations are saturated with broadcast activities all over Africa in Central African Republic, I know we talk about Syria and so forth, it's a a country, uh, in Congo rather, Congo is a country which has seen over six million people dead, most of them Christians and animists, native people. There is hardly a murmur about that. There is huge number of internal refugees in that country. It's a vastly rich country which is being looted by outsiders in, in, and I think international aid agencies know who they are just, but they are protecting them because their own countries are deeply involved in this very deeply uh, dirty and nasty uh, uh, looting of Congo which is one of the, possibly one of the richest countries. What I'm really getting at is that what are Christian fundamentalist ch- churches and their vast resources media resources, what are they doing to help Uh, some of the distress. Uh, Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, a number of of points and questions uh, in that last one. But if I may take the liberty of of choosing one or two um, for the panel. So um, Daniel raised the question, first of all, about access to information and then verification of information in conflict. So if any panelists would like to address that. And then um, also these two points with the illustration of Northern Ireland, but how can radio contribute to rebuilding and rebuilding trust? And nation building is a phrase that is used, but in an intercommunal way when those existing um, tensions may still be there. And then also the role of uh, faith-based organizations should we say, and broadcasters, faith organizations that are into broadcasting, because it is a significant area, absolutely. And there's you know, good practice and bad practice. 
But it'll be very interesting just to hear a little bit about your views on the potential of that. So if you want to start, at your choice of which ones. Thank you. Um, actually, I think I'll talk about two different settings and then tie in some of these points, if I might. I'm sorry, I've um, been in Africa for the last 10 years, so I, um, I can't really speak to, to Northern Ireland, but I, I will speak to the... Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about two places where um, I've been based and where we're working, South Sudan, which is, was um, brought up as well by fellow panelists, um, and Central African Republic. In Central African Republic, um, the conflict has really been framed in many ways by, probably by, by international media and, and international organizations as um, a, a conflict, um, uh, a religious conflict, and, and I've seen that in a number of very reputable, um, you know, media publications. And for those of us working on the ground, um, it was clear that that was not at the root of the conflict, um, and yet it deteriorated in along religious lines. And one of the ways that the radio. Um, you know, we really had a lot of discussions on the, on the, on the inside, and it was really interesting that our radio actually reflected the diversity of the Central African Republic um, itself. Our, our news editor was a Muslim. Um, the radio was pretty much, the, the, the head of the radio um, is um, a woman uh, who's a Christian. The, the radio itself was a very diverse group of journalists. And... Um, who did not, certainly did not think of themselves along religious lines. And, um, and yet they found themselves in the center of a, of a conflict that was really physically actually dividing the city up. And um, one of the things that we were able to do is to bring together faith leaders, to bring together the head imam in Bangui, and to bring together um, the two other uh, Christian leaders um, from the Catholics and from the Protestants, um, to do programs together, to be on air together, and um, to really set an example of interfaith dialogue and um, of tolerance and compassion, which are all um, attributes of the three religious branches. And I think that that's one way. Similarly, in South Sudan, um, in the in a conflict that happened in between independence and the current conflict in Jongle. Um, we were able to bring youth leaders um, into the into the studio for a number of programs from the different tribes, um, and they really, you know, there was a conflict going on in Jongle, and these uh, youth were able to sit together around a table and really, and that was broadcast to really millions of listeners. And I think that's those kind of you know examples of finding credible leaders within the community um, who are open to dialogue and, and providing that space for dialogue um, really has a sort of a multiplier effect. Um, and, you know, I think the radio is a platform, so it, it brings those people together. It provides voice. Um, but also our journalists that, are, that go on air are, are often local. They're certainly locally well-known, and, and I've traveled around various countries with journalists who are known by name and, and are sort of treated like local rock stars. And they themselves and the tone that they take in describing and the words that they use um, on air to describe um, 
protagonists in, in a conflict or um, groups in a conflict are also very, very important. And we talk a lot about this. It, it, at Independence in South Sudan, a lot of our journalists um, wanted to use the word martyrs to describe um, people who had died in the conflict fighting the North. And, you know, martyrs is a really, um, it's laden with a lot of meaning. And, and so the, the use of words and, and how you come about using those words on air um, also has a big impact. These journalists are, are well known and every single day some of them talk to millions of people. So those are just some reflections that, I, that really come from my experience and, and um, of how you, know, you can maintain that credibility um, and that independence and really be a, a force for peace in a situation that's divided. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'd just add that um, I, I think, as Anne said, it's very important this sort of modeling role that radio can have um, and, and should have uh, in terms of uh, modeling both uh, a community which consists of whether it's Muslims and Christians or Hutus and Tutsis or something else or everyone together um, is, is a powerful force by itself, um, especially in a situation where those are the sides, the main sides, or, it's, or, the, or the conflict is framed as a battle between um, those groups, as it is beginning to be, or has been for a while now, in Burundi again, even though the, the, uh, the current conflict didn't start off in that way as a Hutu Tutsi thing, um, it's now being framed by that, like that, by the government, which is, is very dangerous. Um, th so there's that. On um, access to information and protecting sources, um, yeah, I, I, it's very, very difficult. I, I think, you know, it, with, with the radio station in, in uh, Nigeria, we have a number of people at community level with mobile phones who um, say that they are willing to uh, report, we, we can't protect them. You know, you can, you, one of the people, one of the journalists I was speaking to the other day, he was on a bus, uh, he was a teacher before, um, and he was on a bus just three weeks ago, and uh, the bus was stopped by Boko Haram, they divided up the um, uh, passengers, uh, and uh, he went with the Muslim group. He is a Muslim, uh, except a 12-year-old boy with an AK-47 said, I know you, you used to be my teacher. Well, Boko Haram means, um, even if that isn't what they call themselves, against Western education. So uh, the boy was trying to get him to go in the other group to be shot um, because he had taught that boy uh, and this man his name is Baba said uh, no no I've given up teaching and they let him go but you know you can't in that that kind of situation you, it's not possible to protect people they have to make their own decisions and their own choices about what they're going to do um, and whether they, much as in Syria, it's not possible to protect people who are reporting 
um, whether it's on a mobile phone or for a, a national or international radio station. It's, it's just impossible. So they, everyone has to make their own decisions about it. Um, that's all I can say, I think. Thank you. Kavita, possibly on the faith-based organization topic? I was just going to say that I think it's really difficult to have the name, like Christian Services, Relief Services, for example, and say that you are being um, multi-denominational. I think that that's a challenge. I don't think they personally, I think they're more about for development and not trying to just defend their denominational interests. But I think it's really difficult when you have the name Catholic Relief Services. Um, so I think that, you know, a, a, a denominational support for radio needs to not have its name. Um, I mean, I guess people associate with you anyway. But I think your point is totally right. I mean, I lived in Ethiopia for seven years, and it was one of the few countries in that region that has tolerance for Muslim and Christian at the same time. It's, it's sort of eroding now, and it's, there's more uh, tension. But it is one of the few places. It is because um, leaders um, promote um, unity and live it and, and intermarry, which is not the case everywhere. So I do think that interfaith is the only way that radio can be used um, in a peaceful way. Um, I think it's really difficult to have a denominational radio that is um, espousing peace. I'd just like to add one um story from South Sudan. In fact, as, you know, media, independent media were um, cutting back on their reporting um, and the UN radio was playing a lot of music, um, really one of the strongest voices in the country was the Catholic Radio Network, um, run by some nuns. Right. And they are doing a phenomenal job. The President Kier is actually Catholic. And um, I think that they've maintained, you know, this, this sort of position on air, um, probably in part because of some negotiations between the president's office um, and the archbishop. But they are, you know, really doing great community-based work. Um, they, um, they had a program that was broadcast in, in Juba, which was shut down. Uh, was a morning show, so you know they have been um, there's, you know, under pressure. But um, it is a case where um, they're actually reporting from the Nuba Mountains, where there's another conflict going on, um, and it's sort of an extraordinary story of very good community radio that happens to be run by the Catholic Church. You asked a question about Northern Ireland, and you mentioned America, and you could have mentioned any country in Western Europe or North America. Um, you know, my feeling is that large radio stations such as BBC or whatever, PBS even, have been very slow to learn from uh, uh, radios in Africa and elsewhere in the world which have been quite successful in helping to uh, resolve or transform conflicts to bring peace building, to bring peace to countries in conflict. Um, and they're very unwilling you know, it's partly a, a kind of status thing. I think we are large. We have been doing this for 100 years, nearly. Um, and, uh, you know, large organizations are very slow to change, generally speaking, um, but also reluctant to learn from small either organizations like Hirondale, um or, or other 
organizations like Search for Common Ground because they don't have the um, kind of structure which will allow them to learn from small organizations. Um, so I would say, yes, that, that large radio stations could be doing a lot more and they could have learned a lot more a lot quicker. They are learning, but it's very slow. Thank you. Okay, I think we'll take um, two more questions, if, if that's okay. Possibly a few more, but uh, Alice, down here. Thank you. It's just a quick question. Um, I was wondering if the panel would share their favorite radio program or format, just to give us um, a flavor of maybe some of the content of some of the radio stations you've worked with, and just, yeah, give us a picture of your favorite. That's a nice question. Let's just take that one immediately. Can you think anything immediately comes to mind? Francis, you start. Uh, soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of soap opera. I work with the writers, I work with the producers um, to help them. Usually people who, are not, who have never done a radio soap opera before, never even written a story quite frequently. Um, that's what I've been doing in my degree mostly. Um, and uh, it's great because they're so happy to learn something new and exciting which they feel will have an impact and be able to tell not their own story in the sense of them, them as individuals, but their communities or their, uh, all the stories they hear from around them and their families and their um, other you know, uh, villages or, or communities nearby, um, and to bring those into uh, a, a long-running drama, um, which can also have a very powerful impact on... Um, people and on, on behavior, if you like. Um, well, I have a few, but I, I, I just um, thought of one from, from Sierra Leone. I was working um, in the run-up to the 2007 elections, and um, there was an incumbent who was stumping down, but his vice president was presenting, and then there was a, an opposition party. And um, at the same time, some students um, from uh, actually some friends of the family had come out to teach um, to help prepare secondary school students to take the WAS exam and the, it's the West African Scholastic exam and students, it's really a make or break for them and they were working in a, um, a school that um, had a lot of um, former child soldiers and it was really a, a school set up um, to um, take in bright students but who had no money at all and um, on the curriculum for the WAS was, the, was Julius Caesar. And so most of these kids were like buying the cliff notes and trying to memorize it. And these young students, um, teachers, decided they were going to translate Julius Caesar into Creole. And um, they were going to perform it. And that's how the students were going to learn it. And they came to us and said, well, you know, we're translating this and we're, we're almost done. And are you interested? It's radio. And we had a program. Um, it was a youth program. We ran from 8 to 9.30 in the morning on Saturdays after the morning news and, and current affairs. And um, we had a young journalist who actually was trained by UNICEF. He was a UNICEF child journalist in Sierra Leone and um, then came to work with us when he was at the university. And um, 
he said, great, let's, you know, let's go for it. We'll, we'll just do the first act. And so they came on air and they um, performed the first act of Julius Caesar at the same time that, that the country was going through this election. You know, we had this, the old guard going out and the young blood challenging. So there's some really in, in, interesting parallels. And it was phenomenal. Our, our switchboard at the radio was totally overwhelmed. <laughs> and there were calls like, you know, of course, you know, we had to do the, the entire play. And then, um, and, and, you know, did a rebroadcast that was very popular. And, you know, who would have thought, you know, on a Saturday morning that, you know, people in Kailan on the border, you know, um, or the border with Guinea, you know, were tuned into this and were, were absolutely wrapped. And it, it really meant a lot. And, and many people said, you know, they studied that same um, text for their own secondary school exams, and they had never heard it in Creole. And I think just translating that into the local language was extremely powerful, and we all got a great kick out of it. Great image. Uh, I think for me um, would be magazine program, because I think it, the diversity of what, what can come out of radio, like I would say all of the above. I'm a greedy person when it comes to media, you know. Um, you know, because you have people, you know, we were talking earlier about um, communication for development being both an art and a science. And I think the art of radio um, is about news. It is about drama. It is about um, music. And I think there are different groups who excel in these things. And if you can get little clips of that and put it together, I think that is the magic for me. And with links of an of a, um, engaging host, um, I think that's where the magic for radio for me comes in. I agree. Can I mention another one, or do we have... No, 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 you can <laughs> not, mention not, another one. Now we get the fire down. One, one more, one more. I want another. Uh, in Burundi, we, we, uh, um, one of the journalists, uh, the regular morning meeting said, uh, you know, uh, I know a couple of uh, people who have saved someone from the opposite uh, ethnicity, um, and I think we should make two programs about them. We had a big discussion about it, and some other journalists said, yeah, I know someone as well. So we thought we could make about five programs. And we did it very carefully, so we had uh, the person who'd been saved, the person who saved them, uh, and some local official or, or person with status locally who knew the story who would confirm that uh, it had happened. And we made, you know, first three programs, the journalists who made them got beaten up by some soldiers who, in a bar, they said, no, Hutu ever saved a Tutsi, you're lying, you make up these stories. Um, and we carried on making them, and the more we made, the more people began to come to us and say, I did that, I did that, you know, and I've never, ever spoken about it because I was ashamed because... Uh, what I should have been doing, of course, is killing someone from the opposite ethnicity, not saving them. Uh, and I didn't really dare talk about it, but now I feel empowered. I feel brave enough to talk about it because these other people have talked about it. And we broadcast that program, a Hutu one who saved a Tutsi one week, a Tutsi who saved a Hutu the next week. We did it for about four years. Wow. Every single week, a different story. And, and an evaluation of that program, the end of the four years, uh, said that the studio had changed the meaning of the word hero in Burundi. 
Now, whether that's true, I don't know. It's a, it's a great story, though. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Send shivers down my spine. Um, Katie, our little compilation of Sounds of Peace, is that online? Could we possibly play it? Or is it not online yet and we have to we'll tell people that we'll send it to them? Um, so what we're talking about is a podcast called Sounds of Peace, which we've been collecting from across the network. And as Jackie mentioned, we sent a call out, out across the world. We've got members everywhere. And didn't know what we'd get back. And we've got an amazing response from the Himalayas to the Mediterranean, across Africa. People sending such a variety and things which speak to everything which you, you three have been speaking about. Very... Uh, grassroots, bottom-up theatre um, and radio, radio theatre and talk shows. Um, lots of kids being involved, making music, making dramas. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. So do have a listen. We'll send it round. We've got everyone's contact details. And it really brings to life everything you've been saying. Uh, listen in the bath or on the way to work or something, and it will really, yeah, enliven this. Great. Thank you. Okay. One final question, and then we will release. Hi, good evening. Um, my question is, in your practice, um, whose role do you see most influential in building peace, build, uh, peace building or, or um, resolving conflicts in the communities? Um, are these religious leaders or community leaders or... Uh, participatory phone calls, uh, w what do you think works um, best? I kind of feel that someone's going to say context, but <laughs> if you'd like... Um, I, I would say there isn't an individual or a type of person that uh, all they can do is uh, is help bring other people along, but they don't always do that. Um, and I think you know everyone has to understand what peace building is and what it means. And that, to some extent, that means they have to understand um, some of the techniques of managing conflict. Uh, and and that that you know can be done through radio, it can be done through community organisations, it can be done through churches or mosques, it can be done through. So you need that whole range of um, tools and individuals, I would say, to, uh, to get a large percentage of the population along with you because they are the people who build peace, not individuals, not politicians, not, not imams, you know, it's, it's the population. Because if they don't, you can, we, there are so many examples of situations where peace has been made by politicians and other leaders um, but they haven't taken the people along with them. Uh, and peace has been signed, but actually there's been no peace. So uh, the majority of people have to believe in it and understand it and understand what it means for them as well. Yeah, I, I, I will echo that. I think... Um, you know, one of the things that I came back from South Sudan really thinking a lot about is that we, we haven't really um, solved the problem of peace and conflict yet. We haven't, we haven't cracked that nut. We don't really, 
we have a toolkit that's not perfect. And um, I think there are a lot of, you know, really interesting, um, very, you know, hands-on sort of practical work that's being done. And there's a lot that's going on in the academic world around building an evidence space. And um, one of the really interesting um, things that, you know, I've seen recently is really trying to understand um, rather than focusing on the drivers of conflict, actually focusing on what drives peace, because most of the world's population actually lives in peace with their neighbor. And in, in situations, I think, again, of South Sudan, where um, communities are sharing resources, well, how do, they, how do they do that? And what's their mechanism for doing that? Um, and I think that there's some interesting radio programs and participatory film as well um, going on in, in some communities in, in South Sudan to really um, focus and, and highlight um, how those, what are those drivers of peace? Um, I think another interesting, you know, um, the different stages of conflict was mentioned. And, um, you know, a very important period is the, is the post-conflict where a society has to figure out how it's going to deal with its past. And often during that period you have a, um, a transitional justice mechanism or, or, or several different transitional justice mechanisms. That could be a local court. It could be an indictment at the ICC. It could be truth and reconciliation. And I think um, the work of radio in accompanying that, um, that process where sometimes there'll be a trial very, very far away. You know, I think of Sierra Leone with Charles Taylor um, at the ICC in The Hague, and there was a lot of work on radio in, in really getting victims and the community and the, the communities that were affected by a very long civil war to understand the importance of um, a very expensive trial of one person in The Hague and, and, and may, really bringing that justice closer to home. Um, and I think that, you know, so the radio really plays a role in so many different ways and across the, the arc of, of conflict, um, and will do so in, in a different way in, in depending on the situation. Thank you. Rita, the last word. Okay, I'm going to leave the last word to someone I respect highly, um, and I think is one of the most profound humanitarians, which is Haile Selassie I, who had a speech that's probably the most profound speeches, I think, and it's called War. And this was popularized by um, Bob Marley. Um, and if you think about those words of war, you know, until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. And until, you know, people don't have to live in subhuman bondage. So to me, conflict is the source of injustice. And until we can solve injustice, there shall be no peace. And so it starts with us, individually, collectively. And I'd just like to leave with the words of His Majesty. Thank you so much. A round of applause for our panel.